Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Tully for History 311, uh, doing the second part of this week's uh, shorter lectures about uh, the Cotton Kingdom. Uh, last class we talked about uh, African Americans of the New Nation. Today we are focusing primarily on cotton. Uh, cotton is very important for the history of slavery and the history of African Americans, so why don't you open up your PowerPoint and just look at that first map. Uh, and that first map is going to show you where cotton, where all cotton is being grown in the United States. As you can see, it's pretty much centralized and you know right around the Mississippi River area. Uh, the Alabama Black Belt is what they call it because uh, of the like dark, dark black soil. A little bit in North Georgia, those sort of places. Uh, the cotton gin, as we've talked about last time, invented by Eli Whitney, really, really makes cotton more profitable in the United States. Uh, basically, the hardier breed of cotton, which ordinarily had the more seeds in it, was able to be uh, more easily uh, cleaned. And basically, this makes cotton the most profitable crop in all of North America. And it's a very short period of time. That's one thing I want you to keep in the back of your mind as we think about kind of this high slavery, if you will. Kind of this, you know, big plantation style, hundreds of slaves together. What, what you think about whenever you think about slavery, uh, this type of cotton plantation, cotton slavery. Only about 40 years or so, it really gets its height. It's kind of the, the gasoline thrown on the fire that had been smoldering about slavery. Remember, uh, slavery was becoming kind of unprofitable in many parts of the country. It was talked about maybe slavery is going to go away eventually. They, they didn't know what they were going to do about the African Americans. But they did say that, you know what, we should get rid of slavery. It's going to go away eventually. Uh, however, cotton makes it shoot back up. I should also mention this land that, they, uh, that cotton grows on is uh, very tied to Indian removal. Uh, the removal of like the five civilized tribes in Georgia and Alabama, uh, the Trail of Tears, you probably heard of that. Uh, actually, those Native Americans, they were the ones who were like doing some of the first cotton farming. And then basically, <laughs> their land was so good that that's when the white Americans wanted to take it, and they took it. <laughs> uh, yeah, but the, the, the quote-unquote civilized tribes, your Cherokee, Chickasaw, oh my gosh, uh, Cherokee, Chickasaw Creek, Choctaw, and Seminole, uh, they actually owned slaves. In fact, that's one of the reasons they were called, quote-unquote, civilized, is because they did have slaves. They were engaging in some form of plantation farming. And then basically that land was taken away from them by the United States of America and the white American settlers. Uh, as you can also see on the map, uh, cotton, you know, it's a lot, it's very much around... Um, you know, the Mississippi River, some in Georgia, uh, not Georgia, Texas. Uh, some in Texas, I, I should mention Texas in this time period. Uh, Texas is started out as a uh, Mexican territory. It started out as Mexican territory. And at first it wasn't very populated. And uh, Mexico did not want slavery, by the way. Mexico did not want slavery. And so they needed a population to come in to settle the area. So the, uh, the Mexicans start inviting white Anglo people to come into Texas to settle it. But they tell them insistently, you can't bring slaves in because it's against Mexican rules. Now, this is fine and dandy until cotton comes around. And basically, the white settlers like, no, we want slaves so we can have cotton. That causes the Texas Rebellion, the Alamo, all that good stuff. It has to do with cotton. It also has to do with slavery. But aside from Texas, the far west doesn't have too, too many slaves. Um, agriculture was profitable, but not as many slaves were needed that far west. Uh, railroads weren't really in yet. Uh, you're not really close to navigable rivers, so there's not really a lot of slaves there. Uh, same thing in a place like Indian Territory, which was later known as Oklahoma. 
Now, if you can see, if you go over one more, you will see a chart saying the slave population of the United States. It is way higher, way higher in 1860, right before the Civil War, as it is in 1820. As you can see, the number of slaves pretty much doubles, actually more than doubles in the United States. And it actually does shrink in the North. In the North, you have about 19,000 slaves in 1920. By, the, uh, by 1860, right before the Civil War, you have about 64. Uh, that's like your, you know, your very high North places. Your, um, oh, my, my stars. Your, <laughs> your Boston, your Massachusetts, your Maine's, your, uh, your New York, Pennsylvania, places like that. They don't have too, too many. Uh, that being said, though, as you can see everywhere else, it's the Lower South that really jacks up the number of slaves. The Lower South in particular, your Deep South, is the ones that really comes in. There are way more people enslaved in 1860 in the United States than there are in 1820, and that reason is cotton. Uh, there are way more slaves in a place like Alabama or Mississippi than there are pretty much anywhere else in the North in this time period. Uh, you know... So many more slaves were in the South, even though the slavery went down from the North. That's because the Northern states were sending their slaves to the South. Remember, the uh, the transatlantic slave trade had kind of died down a little bit, which was actually seen as a boon for the slaveholders because their slaves are now seen as more valuable. And now slaves that otherwise, you know, weren't of any use in the North are being sold downriver to places like Mississippi and Alabama. Uh, if you go over one more slide, you're going to see where slaves are in this time period. And it shouldn't shock you. It shouldn't shock you where the slaves are because they are right around the same place as they are making cotton. That really shouldn't surprise you. Um, yes, there's still quite a bit in Virginia. Uh, South Carolina has the most slaves uh, by percentage. But if you can see the further west, you know, places like right around the Mississippi River, uh, Mississippi, the Black Belt of Alabama, you can see a little belt right there. Uh, Georgia, Louisiana, absolutely, they are all getting way more slaves. Remember, most people who um, don't have slaves, I should mention that, most slaveholders, most people in the South, most white people in the South don't have slaves. Even though who do have slaves, they don't have that many of them, by and large. Uh, if you're thinking like large-scale plantations, like the big, big plantations, um, I don't know how to say this so it makes sense, but it makes sense in my mind. Okay, most people, if they owned a slave, only had like one slave. But most slaves, by the time we get to the end of, uh, you know, right before the Civil War, right at the end of the Cotton Kingdom, most people who were enslaved were living on massive plantations, if that makes sense. So slavery became more elitist, in, in a sense. Uh, less people had slaves, but those who do had slaves tended to have a lot, a lot more, if that makes sense. Still on average, the average slaveholder only had like one or two slaves, but you're now having to have like mega plantations. So I know that might sound weird, but if you're a slave, you're more likely to be enslaved on a place that has a ton of slaves, hundreds if not thousands of slaves. And these plantations, I should mention, they're not very long-lasting. That's, that's one of those most endearing myths of the Old South, is that, oh, it had been this way for generations. No. Those big plantation houses, like the, the, the thing you think of whenever you hear slavery, you know, the cotton fields and the, you know, the master's big house or whatever, we're talking a couple decades at the very most. Maybe two generations if you're lucky, uh, three really rare, but no more than two generations. Uh, Virginia still has the most slaves in the Union. I should mention Virginia still has the most slaves in the Union, but it has fairly slow growth. Uh, compare that to Mississippi or to South Carolina, where they have a fairly high 
slave population. Remember, South Carolina always had a very high slave population. But the slave population is really, really jacking up really quick. Now, as I mentioned before, half of all slave owners own less than five slaves. Um, even though the number of slaves were increasing, the number of people who had slaves was actually um, smaller. Um, in 1830, for instance, about 30% of the white population owned slaves. Uh, by 1860, right at the edge of the Civil War, only 5% of the white population owned slaves. So, you know, keeping that into account, you go from about one-third to about, you know, one-twentieth of the population owning slaves, and the number of slaver, slaves in general has gone way up. You can see these big, big, big plantations are becoming more common, but they're still a very, very upper-crust minority. Like, the people who own plantations are very small in number, but they're very, very elite. Uh, you do have some black slaveholders, all right? You do have some black holders, some black slaveholders. Not a ton, not a ton. Um, it, it became more common to, uh, like, buy a family member rather than uh, having them freed later on. Uh, you know, basically, if you want to prevent your wife or your child from being sold away from you, or you could start, you know, trying to buy them off. It could be a way for the uh, master to make some more money off of you. Also, some African-Americans purchased slaves themselves. I should mention that. Some African-Americans purchased slaves for various financial reasons, or that it's seen as a way of being elite. Uh, probably the best example I can give from that is kind of a local guy. His name is William Johnson. He was the barber of Natchez. Uh, Natchez, Mississippi. I don't know if you've ever been to Natchez, Mississippi, but it's right up the river from us. If you go up the Mississippi River and not too far into the state of Mississippi, you'll find Natchez. And Natchez was one of the richest towns in America in this time period, per capita, I should say, per capita. A lot of people were making a lot of money off cotton in this time period. Vicksburg was the same way. I think Vicksburg had more millionaires per capita, like a percentage of the, of the uh, town as millionaires, than pretty much any other city in the United States. The keyword is per capita, though. I mean, like, a place like New York is a lot bigger, and there's a lot more individuals. But a place like Vicksburg, there's a smaller number of millionaires, but they're a bigger percentage of the population. Same thing in a place like Natchez. Now, William Johnson, he is black. Um, he is a free person of color. I, I think he was born a slave. I think his dad might have been his, his master. And then he gets freed. Uh, he gets a job cutting hair. He gets a job cutting hair. Because in this time period, there's a lot of uh, taboos and culture around what a white man can and can't do to each other, and one of them is haircutting. Um, it was seen as very taboo for a white man to touch another white man's hair. It was seen as like a very um, emasculating thing to do. You know, basically it's a very uh, submissive, I don't want to say feminine, but just like a very uh, gauche thing for a white man to touch another white man's hair. Most white men would not want to do that, and so instead, a lot of barbers were black. A lot of barbers were black because there was no taboo about a black person touching a white person's hair. William Johnson is one of these individuals. Uh, he becomes very wealthy. He's one of the wealthiest people in the time period. In fact, I think he actually does become a millionaire. He does become a millionaire, and you know, as a man of privilege now, he buys a plantation. He buys a plantation, you know... Um, in, the, in the cotton fields, uh, that'd be east of, of Natchez, and he owns several slaves. He owns several slaves because that's seen as the high-class thing to do. He has a very large plantation, has a bunch of slaves that are underneath him, and ironically, and this is something we, we might even talk about in class a little bit, even though he's seen as a rich man, even though he's seen as somebody who is owning slaves and is one of the elite of the elite of the elite, 
he is actually murdered. He is actually murdered uh, by a neighbor, uh, a white neighbor, who they're having some sort of a land dispute. I don't know. People have disputes and feuds from time to time. And basically, this neighbor shot Johnson, and it was witnessed. It was witnessed. But the neighbor got off because the witnesses were black. And so even though William Johnson was a man of great wealth, great status, he was positioned, you know, yes, he started out as a barber, but then became super wealthy, became a plantation owner, owned slaves, was one of the elite of Natchez. Whenever he is shot and killed by his white neighbor for some sort of land dispute of some sort, uh, basically some of, some of Johnson's slaves observe this, and I think another free person of color observes it as well, but because they are black, they're not able to testify against the white assailant. So even his wealth could not overcome race, which is just fascinating. We'll talk about that more in class, I suppose. So the slave labor is mainly in agriculture, all right? Most slaves are involved in agriculture, with most being in cotton. I should go over some of the other crops pretty quickly. Uh, tobacco, it's still pretty important in the South. Uh, it's a much older crop, needs a lot of labor. Um, it's still profitable, but not quite as profitable as cotton. In fact, nowhere near as profitable as cotton. Uh, the amount of work you have to do for tobacco is intense. There's a lot of work to be done in tobacco to cure the, uh, God, to cure the, cure the plants, get rid of the worms that are typically on the leaves, dry them, you know, preserve them, get it all straight. Um, slaves don't really particularly care for um, to the tobacco production. It seems just a very labor-intensive form of slavery. You're always under the master's thumb. Another one still very important is rice production. Uh, we've talked about rice extensively. Uh, this is mainly in South Carolina and Georgia and the Carolina Low Country, uh, mainly because it, it can be a very temperamental plant. Uh, you, you need not as temperamental as cotton, I should mention. Um, this is where you, know, you have to have the marshy areas with a lot of water to grow rice. Uh, rice needed a very large labor force, uh, very intensive labor, but it also had quite a bit of autonomy. Uh, quite a bit of autonomy... And the only plantation to actually ever have over a thousand slaves was a rice plantation. Uh, your cotton plantations, they were too new to get like thousands of slaves. Uh, the cotton one was a little bit more established. But remember, uh, sorry, sorry, the rice plantations, not the cotton plantations, the rice planta plantations are more established. And remember, they are pretty much on the task system. Um, the, the, the masters are very concerned about the, slavers, the slaves' productivity, but not like making sure they like beat them into doing things at any given time. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, just because you're kind of given off to your own, it doesn't mean you could you had to you couldn't produce. Um, these slaves had to produce rice and yields that the master would like. But it, it was there's no good form of slavery, I should say. But it's the least likely to get you beat up on a regular basis because your master probably wouldn't be there all that often. Now, around here, the most important one is sugar. Uh, sugar is a, another very temperamental plant. It's probably the most profitable of any of these plants. Uh, however, it is also the most temperamental in terms of where it can be grown. It can't be grown in most of North America in this time period. Um, sugar was kind of limited to the islands like, uh, like Haiti and Jamaica and places like that in the Caribbean. Uh, because sugar is very temperamental in terms of freezing. Uh, pretty much as soon as there is a frost of, like, any sort, uh, sugarcane will die. 
And so you have to like have a very warm season. It takes a long time to grow. And if there's anything that's cold, it's going to kill the sugarcane immediately. Nowadays, we have much hardier breeds of sugarcane. But in this time period, that's how sugar grew. It was basically, it had to be coming from a you know, very warm climate that stayed warm, didn't really have frost. And the only place really on the North America continent that could be do it is Mississippi. Uh, not Mississippi, it's Louisiana, my bad. Louisiana. Louisiana was the only place in North America that could really grow sugar. It was cultivated along the Mississippi River. Uh, for instance, if you drive not too far from Nichols, like I drive every day across uh, across the Mississippi River, there's a bunch of plantations there, your Oak Alleys, Laurel Plantation, all of them. Uh, they were sugar plantations. Uh, they were the most profitable plantations, but because they were some of the hardest work plantations. Uh, sugar needs a ton of labor. Sugar needs a ton of labor. A lot of it is kind of wet, not as wet as rice, but still it's a very humid place. Um, you know, to, to make sure the sugar grows properly, it's a very hot and humid work. Uh, and also harvest time was very intensive because it could be short. Uh, basically, that, that kind of small period of time you might have before the first frost comes in to really harvest all of the sugar cane. Um, the refining of the sugar itself requires a ton of labor to basically burn the sugar down, uh, basically boil into these big sugar pots. I'm not going to get into sugar production. You probably know more about it than I do uh, just from being around here because I see sugarcane fields every day coming to and fro work. And maybe some of y'all are familiar with sugarcane. Uh, I remember one, one of the years I taught this class, uh, one of the girls brought in some sugarcane from her backyard and because I never actually chewed raw sugarcane before. It, it's pretty tasty for the first, like, two seconds. Like the first chew of sugarcane tastes great, and then it just turns into like this kind of gummy, nasty mess. But in general, sugarcane could be the most profitable. The problem is you couldn't do it anywhere uh, just because of how the, the, the weather had to be, and it was just kind of very hard to get. And then we get to cotton. Then we get to cotton. Now, cotton... Cotton was the U.S.'s most valuable export, period. Like, by the time we get to the Civil War, cotton was the thing that really made the U.S. run economically. Yes, we have northern industrialism, which is going to get better. But in the immediate time period, like from 1820 to 1860, that was the most profitable thing in the U.S. was cotton. Um, it was not refined or turned into textiles here in America. They generally shipped it over to places like uh, France and particularly England uh, to be made into textiles and clothes and things like that. And cotton really mushroomed in a fairly short period of time. You know, by 1860, about 50% of all exports were cotton in the U.S., which is crazy. And like Mississippi and Alabama become the biggest cotton producers. So cotton, I should mention, unlike sugarcane or something, it was not the most labor-intensive crop. I mean, I know picking cotton is really annoying and long, and, you know, it, it, it's very hot labor, but it's not as labor-intensive as something like sugar or even tobacco. Uh, it didn't really need as many slaves. Cotton itself, a plant, is actually pretty hardy. It's pretty easy to grow, providing the soil is okay. Uh, that's one thing about cotton is it only grows in certain places on earth. Uh, a lot more than sugar. A lot more than sugar. It's a much harder plant than sugar. Uh, but once you get it growing, it really doesn't need that much help. Um, sugar can be much more temperamental, and so can rice, and so can tobacco. Uh, but the reason that there are more slaves involved in cotton is because it was the most profitable. 
because it was the one that was the easiest to do, you can get the best return on it. Uh, well, the best return period was sugar, but remember that was very hard to do, very hard. But cotton was fairly easy, fairly easy work. I mean, yes, picking the cotton can be long and hard, but the cotton gin helped with the sh- you know shifting of the cotton. Uh, it was still pretty tough work, though. <laughs> Don't get it wrong. It's still very not good work. Um, it, the work is actually pretty consistent and pretty regular. Um, cotton doesn't really have a quick harvest season. You can kind of, I, I don't want to say take your time, but it's, it's not as, uh, it's nothing like sugar. Nothing like sugar. Uh, as those plantations grew, the demand for slavery increased as well because pro- cotton was so profitable. As such, the price of slaves went up, and so places that weren't really having as many slaves sent their slaves over. Uh, the slaves are performing pretty back-breaking labor. Like I said, it's very... It's not as bad as sugarcane farming, but it's still pretty bad. Uh, and also, masters felt that the slaves were not picking as much as they possibly could. They felt that the slaves were, were slower. And so that's where they get a little bit more brutal with the, with the slave masters and the overseers in particular. Now, in general, uh, cotton technology tends to lag behind the rest of technology, uh, rest of the country. Uh, the stuff that people use, you know, the, the, the developments that they have in technology tends to be a little bit, little bit behind the rest of the country because plantation owners were mainly spending most of their money on slaves. They weren't spending a lot of their money on technology and things. Uh, the main technology that they had, though, was in transportation because that involves getting things to market. Uh, there are additions and there are new advances in technology that help out the cotton production, mainly for transportation. Things like the steamboat. Uh, the steamboats in the Mississippi, they allow cotton and things to go downriver. And then because it's a steamboat, it can go upriver. Uh, before this, you had flat boats, which could only go down. And then once you get to New Orleans, you sell your stuff, then you sell the wood, and then you walk back to wherever you came from. Uh, the steamboat can actually go upriver against the current. That's a pretty big development. Uh, railroads, not as many. There are some. I will mention there are some. Uh, but the railroads are still seen as a little too expensive to do. And more people use the... Uh, more people in the South, I should say, in cotton production use the riverboats. Uh, in some instances, technology improved the plantation conditions... Not too, too many. It's just basically living on the plantation. Slaves never get that much that's great. Um, like, for various cooking things, for instance, uh, slave women don't really get that as well. The technology they get is not as sophisticated. Uh, cotton does not need that much sophisticated tools in this time period. Now, are there other crops? Yeah, there's a few other crops. Uh, Kentucky does hemp. Uh, Kentucky does hemp. Y'all might be familiar with hemp. Uh, hemp doesn't need that much labor, so it didn't have that many slaves. Uh, wheat replaces tobacco in places like Virginia and Maryland. Um, that is not as labor-intensive at all. Wheat is pretty easy to done. That's one of the reasons why they start selling a lot of their slaves. Um, also, they start doing things like meat, like hogs, and basically corn production, which corn production gets bigger in the Midwest. Uh, yeah, it, it's nothing compared to cotton. Nothing compared to cotton. Uh, now, remember, not all slaves are working out in the field, though. Some of them are working as house servants or various skilled slaves. Um, skilled labor was necessary. I mean, if you're on a plantation, you're kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's a money-making opportunity, and it needs to be self-sufficient. 
So you do have various skilled slaves, your carpenters, your, your blacksmiths, wheelwrights, things like that. Uh, they work pretty hard, pretty well, and they consider themselves better than the rest of the slaves. They consider themselves on a different level than the field slaves, um, oftentimes because they could hire themselves out or they could be hired out. Uh, sometimes they're able to keep their own money. Uh, usually the master takes a percentage of it if they hire them out. Uh, they're seen as a necessity, and they generally think of themselves as, as better than the um, than the the field slaves, as you were. You also have house servants. There are various house servants, um, cooks, maids, butlers, that sort of things, uh, taking care of children, of course. Uh, gardeners, you don't have too many, uh, but you do have some, I suppose, maybe in your super large plantations. Uh, house slaves, in general, view themselves as also separate from field slaves. They did not think that field slaves were as... Uh, elite as they were. They, they felt that, you know, they were treated better and they were a higher class of individuals because they were in the house. Uh, there is a lot of mistrust between house servants and um, field servants. There's quite a bit of mistrust between the two of them. Uh, it's never a unified front, really. It's never a unified front. Now, you do have slaves, where you've been talking mainly about rural slaves and agriculture. You do have some that work in urban places and also in industrial settings. Uh, the urban slaves, such as they are, uh, they tend to be very, very autonomous. Um, in fact, they make up the majority of residents in some southern cities, uh, like in Charleston or in New Orleans. Well, New Orleans is free people of color, which is something different. Uh, masters have generally in less control of them. They could kind of earn their own money, maybe do their own thing. Uh, what sort of thing they worked in really depended upon the city. It also depended upon the master, depending upon the type of work. Uh, some of them could work like clerking jobs. Your urban, you know, your city slaves might have a bit more education. They probably have a bit more money, a bit more independence than others. Um, also, industry does hire some slaves. Uh, industry does hire various slaves uh, to work in factories and things like that. Uh, not as profitable as agriculture. That's not going to come later. And uh, most masters wouldn't let their slaves be hired on to these various factories unless it was the off-season. It was basically saying, like, hey, here's a way to make sure your slave is still working, even though you're not planting, or it's the winter or something. Uh, not a huge number, I, I should mention. Not a huge number by any stretch of the imagination. Let's see. As you, if you look at this next map, you're going to see the various states and who all has a, a majority of slaves. Um, South Carolina, I always mention South Carolina's majority of slaves. Mississippi has a majority that's, uh, that's of, of slaves as well. Um, Louisiana, remember, they're the place that has like a, a, a decent size uh, free people of color population. They have a decent, decent population of free people of color uh, pretty much just around New Orleans. Just around New Orleans. The highest numbers of free people of color, though, are in places like Maryland or uh, Delaware, uh, much older established places. Uh, I would say, though, that in Louisiana, that's the only place where free people of color are part of the elite. Are part of the elite. Now, to get the slaves to do stuff, all right, and this is kind of a carrot and stick thing. Because the masters didn't think that the slaves wouldn't do their best work unless they were in fear of their life. Unless they're provoked. If you look at the literature of the slave masters, which I wouldn't recommend doing, because I had to do it, and it's... Not pleasant literature to read. Basically, they talk about how they, they view the slaves not as human beings, but almost as animals or pets or 
possessions. And basically, like, they, they have to be revoked. If you let them be, if they don't have discipline, they're just not going to do anything. And, uh, you know, they, they do things like kind of, like, public punishment. You know, whipping people in, in front of other slaves as, as a warning to others as well. Uh, and slave children were taught, like, hey, you know, like, try to avoid punishment, you know, resist overseers. Pretty much all slaves got whipped in some form or fashion. Um, slaves made sure that their families knew about the punishment and tried to figure out ways to avoid it. Kind of central to the experience of being a slave is basically trying to not get involved with being punished. And like I said, most slaves got punished in some form or fashion. Uh, if you go over, this is a fairly former, fairly famous picture, I should say. Sorry, my, I sit on a, I sit on an exercise ball and I just kind of squeak there. Uh, 1963, this is a former Louisiana slave, basically showing his back, all right? He's showing his back, uh, basically that he was beaten a gazillion times, and, like, he has tore up his back. This is an extreme example. This is definitely an extreme example, but it's not unusual. It's not unheard of for uh, particularly male slaves who might be a bit more defiant to get beaten quite a bit, but pretty much everybody got beat in some form or fashion. Now, you also have the domestic slave trade. Uh, before this time, we mainly talked about the international slave trade. By the time we get to the Cotton Kingdom, um, it's all about the domestic slave trade. Uh, domestic slave trade, basically selling slaves from places where they used to be, like Virginia or Maryland, but don't have the need for as many slaves, to places like Mississippi and Alabama. Uh, it was very common for slave families to be separated because of the domestic slave trade. Uh, being sold downriver was something, a very real fear, uh, something to, to be dreaded. Uh, generally, slave marriages, for instance, say, till death or distance do us part in this time period, is basically insinuating that, you know, I might be sold downriver and I may never see my wife and kids again. Now, some slaves do escape uh, to, so they wouldn't be sold, or sometimes they were sold because of a fear they would escape. It's kind of a chicken or the egg thing. Um, various slaves would run away because they're afraid they're going to be sold, and sometimes they're sold because the masters were afraid they're going to run away. And a lot more year, a lot more activity happens because of the domestic slave trade than ever happened in the international slave trade. All right, um, the cotton desire, like the, the demand for cotton, is so high that all of a sudden you're getting way more slaves being sold domestically way more family separations than you've ever had before, just because of the sheer need of it. Um, after the war, pretty much the slaves who, after the, after the Civil War, the number one thing that slaves want to do is find their families because a lot of times this is not something that was like generations before, but like something within the past five, ten years that they were separated from their wives or their children or whatever. Uh, I should also mention that in the domestic slave trade, you have a higher degree of cruelty than you have in the international slave trade. I uh, remember the international slave trade, even though they could be very brutal to their uh, passengers, quote-unquote, uh, the, the slave ship captains, you know, they, they want to keep their slaves alive. Uh, they want to make sure that they acclimate. They want to make sure that they get seasoned or whatever once they get to the new world uh, because they want to make money off of it. Uh, these new slave traders, they know that the slaves are acclimated. They don't need to be seasoned. Uh, there's more sense of cruelty because they want to break them from running away and possibly making it to uh, their families. Uh, probably the most famous slave trader who does this is a dude named Nathaniel Bedford Forrest, who had his operation around Mem uh, Memphis. You'll hear about him more later. Uh, for instance, in the Civil War, also being one of the major members of the Klan. 
Uh, but he is known for his brutality. Even among slave traders, uh, Bet Forrest is known as like a very brutal slave trader. And he actually, he actually brags about it. He'll say things like basically like I have the best Negroes. I, you know, I break them better than anybody else. You know, mine are the most submissive. I can take anybody and kind of make them who they want. Uh, another thing you do is is slave families. Um, slave families were actually encouraged. That is one thing that's unique about slavery in the United States is that the nuclear family are basically slaves are actually encouraged to marry. Uh, slaves were encouraged to marry. Slaves were encouraged to like take a wife. Um, masters encourage this for a lot of different reasons, um, mainly because people who were married were less likely to rebel. Uh, people who were married generally were less likely to run away, less likely to like fight the master or something like that. I mean, you have their children around or their, their wife around. Uh, they're more inclined to do what they want. Uh, and also, married people are more likely to produce slave children, which is a boon to the master as well. Because, hey, you know, that's, your, that's, that's more slaves for the master. And two slaves might have, you know, I don't know, eight or nine children. Let's say, let's say five of them make it out of childhood. Like, that's, that's a great boon for the, for the slave master. Uh, which is really interesting because um, most slaves were actually allowed to choose their own mates. Um, very rarely do you have like an arranged marriage that a master puts up or like, Hey, you need to marry this person. Uh, this is one of those times where slaves are actually given some autonomy. Um, you do have the idea that uh, like a woman, a woman, uh, a slave woman, a black woman could not resist her master's advances, but she could actually resist the advances of another slave. She, she actually had the ability to say no in that regard. Uh, the family was kind of the core of the African-American experience in this time period. They really pushed this idea of the nuclear family. <coughs> and uh, they actually do have weddings. Some weddings do occur with slaves. And um, it was actually a chance for, like, rituals to occur, for their old, you know, culture to come out, maybe some old West African stuff coming out. Uh, things like jumping the broom, which is still around in some African-American circles, comes from the slave, slave times. Uh, it really depends on the individual. It depends on what's going on. And also, these couples usually live together and try to keep traditional gender roles unless they're owned by different masters, which wasn't unheard of in this time period. Uh, you know, you might fall in love with a with a slave of a nearby plantation. Uh, but by and large, um, the couple tried really hard to live together. In fact, it's kind of interesting. You'll see this kind of dynamic of of slave families that, like, Within the slave household, they try to keep traditional gender roles. So, like, the, 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 the husband, you know, the enslaved husband might, you know, demand his wife do traditional gender role things for females, like do all the cooking and cleaning and stuff, even though he's been working all day. And she's been working all day, too. Like, even, with, even if they're both field slaves, I've seen evidence of this, where basically you have two field slaves that get married. And it, within their cabin, basically, he demands that she, you know, does all the cooking and the cleaning um, this sort of thing, even though she's been working just as hard as he has during the day. And um, I should also mention, you know, there, I don't want to say more equality in slave marriages and masters, but it's like, it's a more of a sense for a woman to have their say. It's more of a chance for a woman to have their say. And in North America, I'll mention again, actually had way more families, uh, nuclear families than like any other slave society because they have a lot more slave women. Uh, that's just one of the things that happens. North America and the United States, there are way more slave women than they have in places like Brazil or the Caribbean. Uh, let's see, you have a couple of other pictures about that. There were slaves from to different places. 
I'll talk about slave children for a second. Uh, slave children, the only reason they survived is because of extended families and fictive kin. Because, uh, yeesh. Uh, <laughs> they needed all the help they could get. Uh, you, you know, you have, you're, you're still enslaved. Uh, your, your parents might be split up because the master sold one of them or whatever. Um, sometimes they provide support against the masters. You do have a sense sometimes, like, before a kid is old enough to work, uh, which is generally done around five or six years old, they start getting some basic chores. Uh, to work out in the field. Uh, when they're much younger, you can tell the slave community, like as a whole, especially on these large plantations, kind of protects the children. Uh, kind of want to make sure that like they, they kind of stay away from the masters. They, you know, they don't get around too much. Try, almost protecting them uh, for as long as possible from being enslaved. But like I said, extended families and fictive kin were absolutely a necessity for raising enslaved children. Um, also, I should mention that infant mortality rates uh, were tend to be a little bit higher for slave children than they are for white children, which, once again, is not surprising considering the circumstances. And also, black women uh, tended to have higher mortality rates uh, in giving birth than white women did, which is something weird to this day still, uh, which actually probably has something more to do with um, inequalities within the medical system towards black women and how black women are particularly not believed uh, in uh, pain pain. That's, that's something they've had a lot of um, evidence about, is that you know, doctors tend not to believe black women when they say that they're in pain or not give as much pain medicine. So if something is seriously wrong, the doctor may not believe a black woman saying it, which is something which is still around to this day, and you know y'all can discuss that. I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, slave children, they do go to work early, though. Like I said, generally around five or six years old, uh, that's when they're really expected to start working. As you can see in this picture, you see some of these slave children doing uh, quote-unquote light chores in the cotton field, uh, collecting little you know cotton boils, things like that. Uh, that is common, though, for all cotton production. I can tell you, for instance, my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law was born a sharecropper in Mississippi. That is not a joke. My mother-in-law, when she was born, she was a sharecropper. Her parents were sharecroppers. And when she, she was probably about five or six years old, whenever her parents put her out in the field as well, whenever she first was started to expect to do some work. Sexual exploitation, I should mention. Sexual exploitation is something very common in this time period, uh, very common in this time period. Um, Long-term relationships even between um, you know, slaves and, and their masters are quite common. Uh, rape is also very common. Um, actually, it's a lot more common than just long-term relationships. Generally, the masters are like, hey, this is my slave. I can do what I want with her. I might be able to produce a slave child. So bada-boom, bada-bing, bada-bam, I'm going to do that. Um, the most famous relationship was Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, who we've probably talked about. Oftentimes, black women were forced to have sex against their will. And also, there was kind of this way that basically they, masters sometimes use it to emasculate black men. Basically saying, like, look, you can't protect your wife. Uh, you can't protect your, you know, the women in your life because you are weak. And basically kind of to push insubordination. Also, it is weird, like, because of this, and we can get into modern depictions of this if you'd like when we talk about this in class. Uh, black women were also seen as, like, very promiscuous in this time period. And there were some that said that sex between a master and their slave was seen as a good and normal way to stop prostitution and help the public good. 
Basically, like, if a master had sex with their slave, they weren't going out to get a prostitute, you know, and uh, they're not doing that on the street, you know, if a master can just stay home and do that with their slave, uh, we're not going to have prostitutes walking around or doing all that. And plus, you're going to stop the natural, quote-unquote, promiscuity of black women. We can get into that if y'all want. Uh, there's a lot of dynamics going on there. Now, the diet of slaves, the diet of slaves, uh, slaves had a pretty not great diet. Not a lot of nutrients, not a lot of diversity. Uh, very repetitive foods, uh, very much staple foods. Uh, pretty much because the masters were only concerned about giving them calories, not like giving them a nice, diverse, you know, well-balanced diet. Uh, as such, slaves often got chronic illnesses because the double whammy of the labor was very hard and their diets were generally not very good. Uh, main thing that slaves ate was corn. Corn. A lot of corn. A lot of corn. Very staple crop corn. Um, you know, made into various ways. Johnny cakes or, or meal or what have you. Cornbread. Uh, some baking. Some, some bacon was out there. Some bacon was out there. That's probably the most common protein, if they got protein, was bacon or parts of the pig which aren't that desirable, like snout or, you know, hoof or something like that. Um, sometimes the slaves would make, you know, raise their own vegetables or have eggs and poultry to go along with it. Uh, not as common as corn, though. It's a very... That's one thing that kind of goes across all slave lines is the eating of corn. Even when they're raising rice, uh, you're probably thinking, well, I'm guessing the slaves that r raised rice ate rice. No, you'd be wrong. Because the rice was too valuable. Same thing with those doing sugarcane. Uh, they, they did not eat the sugarcane because that's too valuable. Uh, black cooks, though, they do are there. They are African-Americans, are making kind of this African-American cuisine. Um, weirdly enough, though, they, they weren't, even though they hadn't, they didn't have a great diet, it was still better than most other slaves' diets, I should say. Uh, most other slaves in the Americas, in the Atlantic world, in places like the Caribbean or Brazil, actually had much worse diets than the uh, slaves in the United States. Uh, and the slaves' diets in the United States were not that great, but African-American women do the cooking. They start to change the cuisine. Uh, they start mixing different herbs and spices. I mean, seasoning food with salt goes to the beginning of time. Uh, but using things like, you know, pepper and onions, other spices and herbs, uh, frying meats and poultry is another thing, the idea of basically cooking it in fat to try to get some flavor and seal it and kind of preserve it a little bit longer. Uh, it gives, you know, this, this cooking gives more black women uh, control and autonomy. Also lets them be a little bit creative in this time period. It was one of the few ways that black women could get their full say. And also, a lot of times, they're cooking for the master as well. Uh, they're cooking for the master as well. And so they might learn some techniques or see the techniques that the master uses to make these fancy recipes. And then kind of use the same techniques on lower quality food, theoretically. Clothing, uh, clothing such as the slaves were, was pretty straightforward. Uh, another thing generally made by women slaves. Uh, sometimes the master's wife might make something, but not often, not often. Uh, in general, slaves received two suits of clothes a year. Uh, generally, they got a hot set and a cold set of clothes a year. Uh, not a ton of clothes, not a lot of variety. Uh, really depends upon the area, really depends upon the area. Uh, the clothing itself was cotton, like homespun cotton, which is a lower quality cotton, or wool, maybe if it's a colder area. Little kids would probably run around naked if it was if it was a very hot place. 
Uh, slave clothing, as I said, this we're kind of getting into material culture. It's not the greatest. I shouldn't say it's not the greatest. Uh, health is another interesting place. Uh, health, unless it was harvest season, uh, slaves were actually allowed a lot of autonomy where it came to their health care and their own well-being. Um, I've, I've read these plantation diaries, basically where the slave master talks about, you know, who's working and who's not working. And unless it was harvest, uh, the master was actually pretty chill about like, okay, oh, this person says they're sick. Okay, we'll let them sit. That was, by the way, by far the most common, um, by far the most common way to treat an illness is basically to let them sit. Kind of like, let them stay in bed, let them do that. Like I said, if it wasn't harvest in most of these plantations... I'm not saying the master was a cool dude, but generally the masters knew not to press a slave who said they were sick. Uh, was this ever abused? Sure. It was definitely abused sometimes by various slaves, so basically like not work when they didn't feel like working. Um, in general, for most of the records I've seen, masters generally didn't question it unless it was harvest, then they might force it. If a slave got really sick, um, a doctor might be called, but that is an expense. That is an expense. It was a very valuable slave. It's a, you know, a young slave or a slave that's very young and strong. Um, masters would definitely call in a doctor to, to help them out to try to you know, get them to feel better. Uh, remember, because the master is financially invested in the slave being okay. You know, and if a slave were complaining about like, being sick, the master does want them to get better because that's money. Uh, African-Americans were more susceptible to kind of fatal diseases, uh, things like high blood pressure and heart disease, which is still common in African-American communities. Uh, some people say it's diet. Some people say it's other genetic factors. I don't know, but it's just there. Also, something like sickle cell anemia, which is something they didn't have a very good understanding of, but that's a much more common disease in African-Americans than it is in other people. Uh, but if they didn't call the doctor, a lot of times slaves would just use traditional African remedies to kind of treat the sick. Uh, and some of it was effective. Some of it was effective. And I, I should also mention, uh, the slave population in the South really grows by natural reproduction. Uh, in addition to being sent down river, um, they're not bringing in that many slaves from Africa. It's just people reproducing and those slaves are now seen as, uh, you know, money for the master. Now, you do have socialization. Now we're kind of getting into culture. This is, this is stuff I like talking about. And the socialization of the slaves is, is quite interesting. Um, because they're given so much relative autonomy in these large plantations, where you know, you're going to have hundreds, if not close to thousands of slaves for maybe a few dozen white persons and masters at the absolute most, uh, there's a lot of autonomy and a lot of, lot of way for like, slaves to kind of impart their own culture to their children. As I mentioned, children were seen as something that was very important, um, somebody that definitely had to be protected, not just by their parents, but by the slave community as a whole. And so the, the, they use a lot of folk tales. Uh, Br'er Rabbit is probably the best example I can think of. Br'er Rabbit, uh, Br'er Br'er, Br'er Fox, all of them. But Br'er Rabbit is probably this, like, they're tales designed to teach children lessons. That's one thing you're going to learn if you learn about fairy tales in general is that they're designed to teach children lessons. And these Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Rabbit? Br'er Rabbit tales uh, talk about things like survival, you know, being quick and, and witty. Uh, that's one thing that you see in the Br'er Rabbit stories, is that Br'er Rabbit doesn't outfox, you know, Br'er Fox, oh my god, outfox. He, he doesn't beat, you know, Br'er Br'er or Br'er Fox by, you know, beating them up or being stronger or more powerful. He does it by being clever. He does it by, like, being sneaky. 
And that's kind of what they encourage. The slaves really encourage, like, hey, if you go up, up, up against the master directly, you're probably going to have a bad time. You're probably going to get crushed. You're probably going to die. Uh, instead, you got to be quick. You got to be, you got to be witty, sneaky, clever, whatever you want to call it, uh, to survive. You know, have self confidence because nobody else is going to have self confidence in you. Uh, you know, it, it's definitely a sign of being oppressed. The fact that they are, they realize that they can't be stronger than the masters. You you can't be direct in opposing it. You have to be sneaky. Also, children learn to be like kind of camouflage their awareness of what the master is doing of the of the treatment. And a lot of times masters don't understand that slaves could be duplicitous. Not duplicitous, but basically have their own lives. Uh, masters would say it's being duplicitous. They say that slaves are being sneaky or two-faced or you know, these kind of jerkwads. But you definitely have a sense that in order to survive, the slaves start doing code switching, which is something we haven't talked too much in class yet about. But code switching, this idea that in front of the masters, the slaves are like, okay, you got to talk this way, act this way. But as soon as they're away from the masters, they talk a different way. And the masters are actually somewhat aware of this. Now, the other thing which is really big, really big, is religion. Really big is religion. I think I said it before, but you cannot iterate how, you cannot overstate how important the black church is in black history. This is one of those times. Um, last class, we talked about independent black churches for free people of color uh, or people in cities. Maybe sometimes slaves would be allowed to go to church if they live close to a city. But if we're talking down the plantation, religion is still very important. Now, if the master is behind the preaching, expect the book of Philemon. <laughs> expect a lot of the book of Philemon, which is where Paul says, hey, master, bring your, you know, accept your former slave. Um... You know, they're, they're really trying to preach obedience in that. Uh, some masters are still kind of doing the thing to, like, uh, not have their slaves get into Christianity because the taboo against uh, owning another Christian is still around. It has lessened. Uh, most masters, if they, they think that Christianity is going to give the slaves compliance, and so they do try to push it. Now, to be fair, some slaves ignore religion. Some slaves are like, you know what, uh, this sucks. My life sucks. I don't want to have any hope. I, I just, no, this sucks. Now, if a slave is doing the religion, if the slaves are allowed to do their own religion, which is allowed in a lot of churches, uh, sorry, in a lot of plantations, uh, the master is okay with the slaves doing their own thing on Sunday. Uh, unless it was harvest, uh, Sunday was always a day off of work. And so the slaves are given a little bit more time, and a lot of times they want to preach, and they want to hear sermons and stuff. Um, if it is a slave doing the preaching, expect a lot of messages from Moses and the like. Uh, literacy is not that high, so basically they kind of take stories that they've heard, and they really tend to like Moses. Uh, there, I, I read an exploration of like basically former slaves talking about religion, and they like Moses more than they like Jesus. They're like, yeah, they, in fact, they confuse the two of them quite a bit. It's like, you know, Jesus died on the cross to free the Israelites from, uh, from Pharaoh type of thing. Uh, they really latch on to this idea that uh, you know, Moses is going to get us out of here, take us to the promised land. Uh, oftentimes they're led by semi-literate, you know, they might have heard some Bible studies. They're self-crawled black preachers. Uh, also a ton of African beliefs are brought in. A lot of African, West African religious you know, rituals are brought in. Um, singing and dancing, uh, kind of like loud um, speaking out, emotive services, you know. It's not just sitting down quietly in a pew and listening to a sermon. Generally, it's a more emotive experience, uh, more clapping and things like that. Uh, and also, like, doing things like to ward off evil. 
the primo example of this is a local one, voodoo. voodoo. Uh, basically, it mixes Catholicism with West African beliefs. I think I talked about that more in a previous class, but that's really the, like, the definite slave religion is voodoo. Um, if you talk about like an Americanized version of it. You can see a, a picture of this if you go more one over. Um, historians do debate the, the kind of character of the Old South slave system. Uh, some earliest ones saw it as paternalistic, basically like the masters saw themselves as fathers of these individuals. Uh, and this idea that like, you know, these slaves were very happy with the system, it was very economically be- uh, beneficial. Um, they say that most, you know, most masters treated their slaves pretty well because they had a financial interest into it. Uh, others deny this paternalism. Uh, they say that basically this is all on force. Um, you know, basically that slaves were compounded or, or compelled to do this by force and violence. And also uh, fears of genetic predisposition for things like, you know, being brutalized or being enslaved. It also depends on the master. Uh, what is my take on all this? Uh, my take, here we go. Slavery is bad. I'm not debating that. Uh, but it wasn't especially worse in North America as opposed to a place like the Caribbean or especially Brazil. Um, economics definitely do press the elements of cruelty for most slaves. But for most slaves, it's not being beaten 24-7. Does that make sense? Like the masters want them ultimately to do work and earn them money. It's not just a, a brutalizing people service. That's what they kind of, that's what the masters did to the native Americans. If they just wanted to brutalize people, they'd go kill some native Americans. But theoretically, uh, I mean, yes, are there some sadistic masters out there? I would not doubt it. Okay. But also I don't misinterpret that. I'm not saying that being a slave was great. No, being a slave sucked. Uh, it like this, this is not a competition about what sucked worse. I mean, it, it definitely sucks, but it was not as I wouldn't say it's especially worse in North America. Does that make sense? I, I don't think it's like especially bad in North America to be a slave, um, as opposed to slavery other places. That makes sense. I don't think North American slavery is any more severe, any more um, brutal than other types of slavery, if that makes sense. I'm not saying slavery is good or slavery is not brutal. It is. Slavery is the absolute worst. I'm not an apologist for slavery. But what I am saying is I, don't, I wouldn't say that like slavery in the United States is special uh, in, in its intensity or cruelty. Um, it wasn't just being beaten 24-7. It's just a really crappy life. It's a really crappy life. And that's why I, I do like to put so much emphasis on things like the Br'er Rabbit stories or socialization or religion or, or food or anything wherever they can kind of take their own lives back a little bit, you know, kind of re- regain their own personhood. So if you go to the conclusions, black labor, as I said, it was a response for economic growth. Uh, black women and men, they preserve. That's the main thing I want you to think about. They preserve expanded African-American heritage. They resisted efforts to dehumanize them. Also, some slave couples do live together on master's property. But this is an intensification that's going to happen right before slavery is outlawed. Had it not been for cotton, eh, I don't know if we would have had it be as dramatic of an end. Um, slavery probably would have gone away eventually. I also don't know what would have happened to the plight of African Americans in the United States had it not been for the Civil War. We'll get into that. But next class, we're going to talk more about like how to get rid of slavery. How to, are we going to like try to abolish it through the law? Or are we going to encourage slave rebellions? And we're going to talk about that more next class. 
So for that, this is Dr. Tully for History 311.